0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: I need you to get those traitors away from my front door. They're blocking access to my place of business, causing a disturbance on the promenade, and they're probably a fire hazard. They belong in a holding cell. Every last one of them. Well, I hate to admit this, but I agree with you. From what Chief O'Brien tells me about strikes, they sound like trouble. I don't like mobs. In my opinion, if you need one to get what you want, it's not worth getting. Good. Then you'll haul them away. I'll do nothing of the sort. But you said... I know what I said. (laughs) But I have strict orders from Captain Sisko not to impinge on your employees' freedom of expression. As long as they stay peaceful and allow your customers access through the second level entrance, I'm not allowed to interfere. In that case, would you mind serving some drinks?
2: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 11th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing, just right.
3: Fade
1: color,
3: color into black and white, under the everything will be all
2: right. And welcome to the show today, where our entire theme for the hour is going to be. The Voices of Organized Labor. I hadn't expected to be doing this exactly today, but something happened earlier this week that sort of spurred it on. But among the voices you'll be hearing uh, during this hour will be um, the voice of uh, what's his name? I can't think of his name. Sid Ryan of the CUPE, who I uh, who I uh, had a long debate with oh, almost 10 years ago, and it was quite a fascinating debate. We'll talk about that a little later, and you'll hear a good clip from it. Also, of course, uh, I've been in debate many times over the years, here in the city and and around on unions, and we also had an interesting debate with Gil Warren that uh, you'll hear a, later on, a little later on in the show, too. But first, what happened earlier this week... Um, newspaper clipping I've got here from the London Free Press from June 8th talks about uh, the uh, strike that was going on at Kellogg's, or the lockout, if you want to call it that. And, of course, there's uh, it's, it's local 154G of the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers union that uh, apparently they went through a whole bunch of uh, negotiating sessions, over 20 of them since February 10th, according to the company spokesman. And despite their best efforts to reach an agreement, their offer was rejected. They said they bargained in good faith and and it was re- with regret that they took the action. Now, this past Monday, I guess uh, something weird happened, and that was that another union showed up at their doorstep, I guess, and that was c a w along with um, um, you know all their supporters, Tim Kerry, of course, uh, was leading the pack there, and it was interesting. Uh, this broke on a bunch of the radio stations around town. I called in on a few of the stations. Some of the debates were very interesting, and uh, I was one of the earlier callers on on a number of the shows, and and a lot of resp- a lot of responses to my comments, and not all positive. Let's put it that way. So I thought what I would do today is is you know with all the things going on in the economy, with with uh, we just found out today, I guess the deal's uh, finished now. You know, Fiat and Chrysler are one now. And there's a lot of union talk, and of course unions still uh, wanting um, bailouts for, for business and all this kind of stuff. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to take uh, the hour out to just to look at how the labor movement thinks about things and how I think that they constantly get themselves into trouble by their own philosophies and stuff. But what happened apparently on Monday was the CAW showed up. Uh, they, they were going to stop, uh, quote, strike breakers from going in and, and uh, you know, what they call scab labor, which turned out not to be the case, by the way. It wasn't the case at all. But uh, Tim Carey showed up, and they were there, and they were threatening violence. And the worst thing he said was that he said that they had a moral right to use violence in order to protect their jobs. And uh, that was just a stunning statement to me. But, you know, now Kellogg's, he admitted they had a legal right, but they don't have a moral right to... uh, to lock people out or to, or to get any replacement workers. Now, the, the issue was, of course, there were no replacement workers being brought in, and the people that were being brought in was members of the management, people who aren't in, in the union, people who are already working there don't have a dispute with the union, and they were the ones coming through the lines, but the whole issue was discussed as if it were uh, strike breakers coming in in the common sense of the word, uh, scab labor, the type that comes in temporarily and then gets uh, replaced when the regular guys come back. But to say that um, they have a moral right to get physical and use violence, I think, is a complete aberration of the word morality. You, you know, in a civilized society, morality defines a, such a society as one that bans force in human relationships. I talk about this all the time. and makes certain that all relationships are based on the theory of consent. And, of course, that's where a lot of the debate comes in, that the, you, you can say what you think, I think you're not working on consent, and they say, well, yeah, it is consensual, because they think... Democracy is the same as consent. But um, we'll get to that later. But unions do not work generally on the principle of consent. And, you know, basically that means if you're not working on consent, you're working on something else. And that would be some form of legal force or, or even physical force is how it comes down to. And that is a completely immoral basis on which to base any relationship. Unions are not just workers' associations, and that's, that's a message you'll hear me repeat over and over again today with, with a lot of the people I'll be opposing. In fact, I would say unions in general are opposed to the labor force. Uh, you know, they, just, they don't like competitive labor. They hate competitive labor. And that's why I think the whole labor movement as such has been mislabeled. It's really a, an anti-labor movement, because when they go on strike against an employer, they are striking against other people in the workforce who are willing to do the same job for less money and that's all it's about and how else I mean that's just plain old greed isn't it it's not even selfishness anymore that's greed that's when you're cutting somebody else out of the situation not giving them a chance and whatever success you have does end up being at the cost of someone else's success and that's the only way I can morally interpret it if anyone tells you they got a moral right to use force I mean you've got you've got a right to use force back on a person like that he's threatening your life and as Ayn Rand used to always say morality ends where a gun begins and that's uh, you know once you take away somebody's choice uh, you're no longer working on your own you're a danger to society and um, you know whenever I hear union people representing business and, uh, and because of course they're the only ones that ever talk to the media often when there's a strike going on or an issue you don't really hear that much from the business people themselves you always hear the union representatives talking about what's going on. And they always talk in terms not of production and things of that nature, of, of, of the employer. They always talk in terms of jobs. It's as if uh, the job comes first and what what creates the job is completely secondary. And you'll hear that reiterated over and over again. But, uh, of course, the thing that makes the North American uh, worker worth anything is not so much unions and labor, You know, uh, you know. And they're, they've always been a small part of the labor force. Um, very small in the States, a little more in Canada, but um, the thing that does it is capital, which is why those societies that have been called capitalist, even though they aren't pure capitalists, they're still mixed economy, but have a majority um, capitalist operation, up to a point. We don't anymore. I think we're at the 50-50 point now. But that's why you call it a capitalist society, because it's a society in which people are allowed to accumulate their earnings, their excess earnings, and that is what, interestingly enough, you will hear the labor movement begging for, for capital, they want capital, they want capital, but they want to avoid the entire process necessary to create capital. Now, if you think about it, if you had to do everything by hand and by human labor and by human force, you couldn't possibly produce things the way our society is today. Our society produces the things it does because of one thing and one thing only, and that's the know-how and the technology that goes with it to the people who create this stuff so that we can have all these wonderful inventions and stuff. Now, what, what you just heard me say, I actually said on the air on some other stations and some other people heard me, heard some callers call in. And um, what I just said now, I said on CJBK and I said it on AM 980 as well earlier this week when this thing got going on Monday. And some of the callers that called back, especially the people who were supporting unions, were most revealing in what they said about why they support unions and what what drives them. So I thought that's what we'd share today, not so much as pushing my side of the issue, because, you know, let's, let's let the other side have a voice here. Now here's a guy named Greg. He called and he heard my call. Say he agreed with me about 50-50. Says um, that I'm absolutely right that there's no place for violence on the job and that kind of thing. And he says he doesn't really know what the issues are involved on, uh, you know, up up at Kellogg's they were talking about in this case. Um, And they were talking about $25, $35 an hour workers. And he doesn't know why the CAW would be involved with it since they're not the union that was supposed to be there. Now... Here's what he says. He says, but the bottom line is that without unions, you would have corporations running wild. And then he says well, he's personally had experiences with corporations who have who have hired thugs, and they were the first ones to reach out on a violent level. He says, so don't kid yourself, says Greg. You might have situations where guys on the union lines will start getting rough, but I would argue it's 50-50 in that all you all you'll have half the time where these corporations themselves will hire thugs. They'll hire guys aggressive drivers people who are specially trained in strike-related situations, and they'll deploy them. And he says, you're in an industry where money, at the end of the day, is what is the determining factor. And there's a lot of evil that can come out of either side. Like I said earlier, don't go writing unions off just because you've got some tough guys on those lines. A lot of those guys are there, and they're aggressive for a reason, end quote, says Greg. So there he is. In the same breath, saying that yeah, the guys on the lines are the one initiating the fight. Yeah, they started. He even uses that word, um, and he calls the other side the people who are specially trained in strike-related situations, who obviously have uh, licenses, who are probably um, maybe private security guards. Who knows what? And compares them to thugs. I don't think that's exactly a comparison. And is there not a difference between the person who's protecting his property, be it a corporation or an individual? and the person who may violate it. Come on now, this is a moral equivalence. It's one of the things the unions always count on, is moral equivalence. Each side is just as evil. And, um, and, it's, a, and it's a given, especially with corporate and menta- anti-corporate mentalities. Now, people who are specially trained in strike-related situations, you can't, uh, you can't call them thugs. It's the guys on the union lines who start getting rough, quote, end quote. They're the thugs. You know, another caller calls, and his name was Barry. He says, I've been listening to the show, and I'm going down to support the Kellogg's workers. I wonder how silly he felt when he got down there and found out what the situation was really about. But he says, I think it's time workers stood up for their jobs. I'm a proud union guy, and he says, uh, "Over for over 30 years, he says. Then he was asked, he said, would you go down there and even participate in violence, if it meant violence? And he says, absolutely. And, of course, he was just left there. It's amazing how violence is just a given with a lot of union people in the way they think about it. It's like, oh, that's okay. If you're doing it for your job, you got a cause and you can use violence. And um, then there was another caller, Robert, and he said it's not a case of supporting violence per se. It's a case of realizing who's generating the violence. Kellogg's, by bringing in this type of situation, are promoting violence. And this is nothing new. You go back to the early 1900s when they beat up people, apparently, in the Ford Company and but and people were beat up uh, by people who were hired to do that kind of thing out west way in the early 1900s we had people wanting to form unions being machine gunned by the government by the government no less not by the business but notice by the government i mean let's face it it's a two-sided thing there he goes again another guy saying it's, t- it's a two-sided thing um kellogg's is violent because well they're trying to cut back on expenses that makes them violent and uh you know they're, they're offering a wonderful pay increase to these people. I, at least what I read in the paper looked pretty good to anybody who's unemployed right now, I'll tell you. But uh, that's considered an act of violence by people who apparently are in the union. If they don't give you what you want, well then you can you know, fight them. And if they defend themselves, then they're violent too. And then um, and of course there's Tim Carey himself. And he says, you know, he, he admits the union there at Kellogg's had a good relationship over the years and that this is going to set things back. I don't know if he's talking about his own actions or just the strike itself, but this was interesting. He says, I think you have to recognize that after a contract's done, people have to go back in the workplace and work together. This is certainly going to set any labor relations back a long ways. And, you know, when when I hear this, I was wondering, when a contract's done, why do union people think they are married to that business for life? Why can't some other union move in? Why can't another group of workers move in? But even when the contract is not active, they still have this permanent marriage for life, and uh, and unless the employer agrees to it and wants it that way, I hardly think that's a fair situation for the employer. Getting close to the quarter hour now, so I want to take a quick break here. Well, not that quick a break, but uh, what you'll be hearing here is uh, something that was recorded oh 10 years and two months ago believe it or not when i was on the cts uh, program um with sid ryan and we were talking about unions now this was on the Rhonda london show at the time and it was my first appearance on that particular show what i didn't know when i was there was that the the format we were running in was not the normal format for the show i ended up appearing on many shows afterwards but this was my first and i thought this was normal for the show but apparently, her show format at the time—you never put pitted guests against each other. What she would do is she'd interview one guest for ten minutes, and that guest would leave the studio, and then she'd interview another one. But um, Sid Ryan—we uh, thought he wasn't going to show up that day, so we went to air. We were going to go on our own. Ends up, we ended uh, having this amazing debate in the studio. It's an absolutely—I've uh, I've played one clip from this before, but this is—this one's going to run oh seven eight minutes and um, it's sort of more the opening. Now it, it, it is edited, I tried to keep it down to some of the key points. And when we come back on the other side, we'll carry on with more union voices.
4: Always when you get into a strike situation, uh, it inflames people, there's no question about it. But I wanna stress that 98% of all collective agreements, and there are literally thousands of them on an annual basis negotiated, only 2% of them end up in a strike, and uh, as has been borne out by this particular strike, they generally last only a couple of days. You'll find very, very few of them last beyond that. The ones that really impact upon the public, such as transportation, um, are the ones that get people thinking, do we really need unions or should we mm-hmm. take away the right to strike? And uh, I just remind people that we live in a democracy and people have got the right to be able to join organizations um, and pool their resources, get the best deal. The Pope just very recently came out um, with a document uh, basically calling for uh, more liberal unionization rates around the world because the Pope sees uh, that the race of unionization means increasing the standard of living. For, uh, for ordinary working people. And that's the best protection that they have against the, the market forces that we have at play out there.
3: Robert, you would say unions have no well, place in a democracy. You use the I, exact I, opposite argument. I'd go
2: even further. I'd say that unions don't really represent the ordinary working person. In fact, that they are an organization put together to be against the ordinary working per- person. When a union goes on strike, it's not really striking against the employer. They're striking against all the other unemployed and other people who are employed at, at lower pay uh, who might want to take their jobs or would be happy to have a union job if, if that option was open to them. So that when a union goes on strike, it's really a, a strike against the marketplace of, of competitive labor and other people willing to w- do the same work for less money. And I don't think that that really serves the union members themselves. They're generally pricing themselves out of existence as time goes on because they can't compete with non-union areas. And, and I think As well, that you know, unions have become over the years more lobby groups and representatives of their members. And uh, and until we have voluntary unions, I think that is the thing that we want to change in society, is to make
4: that membership voluntary.
3: How viable would that be, though? Uh,
4: well, first, of all, let me respond to, to <laughs> some of that uh, right-wing drivel we just heard there it 's actually right uh, drivel. Uh, l- let's talk about it. Um, you know, unions are against ordinary working people. Well, the union I represent, uh, the members I represent, 180,000, um, who on average earn about $26,000 per year, which is boils down to be about $13 and $14 per hour. Um, you know, my friend here would love to see uh, people being able to be forced into the, the global economy and the global marketplace, where you have to compete for that job and say, "Okay, you really only deserve eight dollars per hour." Um, is that in anybody's interest to have a whole pool of workers out there, everybody in Ontario, um, like Alabama, working for 8 nine, ten $9, $10 per hour? How is that going to raise the standard of living? How is that going to, for instance, how can a family um, on 8, 000, $8 an hour, which is about $16,000 per year, how can they afford to send their children, for example, to mm-hmm. university? Um, how can we get people to break out of the poverty trap? How can we d- deal with all the problems of uh, societal problems if you have people earning $8 per hour? You can't do it at $8 per hour, and that's, that's the, the flaw in the right way argument?
2: Um, well, I have made no such argument. I have not stated who should be paid what or whether some people should be paid more or less than others. I'm just basically saying that a job is a, is a relationship between an employer and, a, and an employee. And if someone wants to work and is able and willing to work for less than what you think they should be working for, they should have that right.
4: But, what you're saying but, is that we but should think about
2: what unions do when they go on strike. What do they, what do they call labor that wants to walk and cross the picket lines or go and take the jobs? They call them scabs. That, that to me, is not indicative you're of you're a movement you're that you're cares about those people. They're the social problem.
4: No, you, the social problem is the unemployed people and the people who are it's underemployed. But it's not the unemployed people who are crossing our picket lines. It's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's management. You see, when you go into a strike situation, maybe you don't understand the labor relations in the province. Um, employers have the right to lock people out, and they've done it many, many times. Teachers were locked mm-hmm. out in mm-hmm. this province. Um, there's workers every day of the week get locked out of their workplaces because the employer decides we don't want to pay the extra amount of money. Um, so so why that, should so they have
3: to? Why should well, they have to? Because for it's example, a b- because it's a, bar-
4: it's a bargaining relationship. When you enter into collective bargaining, um, the idea is, is for both parties to be able to sit down and have a negotiated settlement. And what drives the settlement is the, uh, the ability of the employer to perhaps lock out the workers or the ability of the workers to withdraw their labor. That th- that's allowed in, in, in a free democratic society. It's okay to withdraw right, your right, labor. It's not a crime. But
2: a union person can not only withdraw his labor, because he's a member of a union, he's withdrawing the labor of other people in society, too. For example, if I'm the employer and you're, you're the employee, let's say you and I sign a one-year contract and it's fine and it works out till the end, and at the end of the one year you decide you want to go on strike because you're not happy with the conditions I offer you. Well, as an employer, I feel that I should have the right offer those conditions that I'm offering to someone else who's willing to accept them, but that's not the philosophy
4: on which but unions that's operate. But that's not the law of the land, even for God's sake. What are you I'm not about? arguing about the law of the land. But I'd,
2: I'd th- like to change the law of the land to something th- 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 more th- th- reasonable. To th- th- Say
4: what? Like that's what you're talking about. It sounds like Nazism, for God's sakes, Where you you, you, where you, where you force people to work in slave labor for a certain wage, and if they don't like it, then you can just lock them out don't and bring worry. in a whole new batch of workers. That's, that's
2: that's slave labor. We abolished no, that in the 1860s. We abolished coercion. Hopefully, way back when, but unions operate on coercion. I mean, membership where's in a union is... Where's the
4: coercion? It's if I want to work for X
2: company and it's unionized, I have to join that union.
4: No, it's 50% of the employees, a democratic process. You have a vote where, where you go in and 50% of the employees, or greater than 50% of the employees, agree to join the union. Um, then you can go and right. apply for certification. Now the issue can I like finish this one sure sentence? Sure. It's, it's a democratic process, extremely democratic. When we go to the bargaining table and we decide that we don't like the offer from the employer, We're allowed to go out and uh, Conduct a vote amongst the membership, and again, it's a democratic vote whether they want to go and work for the wages offered by the employer, or they can withdraw their services. Everything about trade unions are completely democratic. Well, but why do you, wha- nigh- you
2: oppose that? Because, because what rights does the employer have? That's what I'm concerned. The same rights. A, a relationship static. should be a two-way street. It but is a two-way. But way street. he does not have the right to hire someone else. It's the if, same. If his current th- employer employees indicate that they're unhappy with their job, they're going on strike because they don't like the conditions of the work. Which is what we have to assume when someone's going on strike. And, you know, I, I, yes, I, I have been a now, member of a union, wages. and I've been a member of non-unions, I mean, in places where mm-hmm. there are no unions, which I always preferred to work in. And they didn't pay these slave labor wages you're talking about. I don't know why that argument but keeps coming I'll into why, it. Cause it's cause like it's a medieval argument that comes from hundreds started. of years ago. Can I ago.
0: jump in, uh,
3: into this argument here? I think sometimes, though, that the negotiated contracts that are won by unions benefit even non-union shops because it raises a standard of living for everybody.
2: Well, that's true in any, in any area of the marketplace where people are making money and it's drawing high wages to whatever area. If, if you're in the electronics industry, like right now, for example, people who are working on the YK2000 problem are being
4: paid exorbitant amounts of money per hour to work yeah, and fix th- on you're that. Talking about highly and, and skilled professional workers um, who've got post-secondary education in most instances, um, and there are some plum jobs there for those folks. Mm-hmm. But you know, you have to recognize that society is not, a, is not, is not uh, built like that. We have an awful lot of people who drop out of school, we have an awful lot of people with grade 12 education, and we have an awful lot of folks with post-secondary education who cannot break into the marketplace.
1: buttoned up yet. What's your name? Windrush. Oh. Me and my colleagues of the works committee. How do you do? Would you mind producing your union card? I'm afraid I can't. Oh? Well you see I I happen to be staying with an aunt who has rather strong feelings about unions. She's not the only one with strong feelings, mate. But it's not compulsory is it? No, it's not compulsory only you've got to join, see? Oh well if it's not compulsory that's all right I'll join. <laughs>
2: It's just like a union conversation. It's not compulsory, but you've got to join or else. Uh, welcome back. I'm Bob Mess. This is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, five one nine six six one thirty six hundred. the number to call if you want to make a comment on any of this. Um, just to address some of the, the quick things that you just heard in that. Uh, now, remember that happened in 1999, that uh, little debate between myself and Sid Ryan there. And, uh, of course, the same, and, and also the thing you should know, it was the day after um, Toronto TTC strike, and they thought it would still be going on that day, but apparently it was, it was actually settled that morning or the evening before. And uh, so that's what he was talking about when he was talking about the short-lived strike. But, um, you know, Sid points out that 98% of collective agreements don't have uh, strikes, only 2% do. That doesn't change the nature of what we call collective bargaining. Um, you know, it's a little bit like a guy coming in in and, and holding you up and putting a gun to your head and saying, Well, I won't shoot pull the trigger if you give me what I want. And so that when you go and give him what you want, he says, Well, I didn't use violence because I wasn't didn't have to go that far. The person followed through on my threat. And that's kind of how the whole uh, the, the whole dynamic of the labor organized labor, and I gotta separate that organized labor. Um, situation is with uh, with normal employers. Now, um, he says we live in a democracy and people have a right to organize. Well, that's true, but they don't have a right to force other people who don't want to be in the group to be in it. We also have freedom of association. We also live in a free society. That's the part they always forget. And, you know, when, when again, the left says democracy, the left says union, or... Um, anything to do with voting and things like that. They're really talking about majority rule, not really the principles of democracy in a free society. They figure 50% plus one, one—that you, know, you should be able to do whatever you want. And, uh, of course, he calls anything I say right-wing drivel. He'd never met me before, by the way, and, and during that whole conversation, he accused me of supporting Harris, who I ran against, and, and all sorts of strange things. But he says unions represent ordinary people and started referring to his own members and how some of them only make eight bucks an hour and all this stuff. Um, But that's still his own members. He's not referring to the ordinary people who aren't his own members. And uh, it's interesting that when you say you want to leave people free in a voluntary sense, he calls that forcing people out into the world market. Now, that kind of force is not... Political force, or or even any sort of economic force—that's the force of nature that, that's happening there. And to the extent that someone's using physical force against, like human force against someone else, they are actually placing the burden of their existence on someone else who's also fighting the force of nature out there somewhere. And it, you know. And he says, how will $8 an hour feed a family? That's the flaw in the right-wing argument. Well, it's not even a right-wing argument. It's not an argument at all, and $8 has got nothing to do with anything. Um, as far as people in Alabama at the time being poor, I remember I was down there. And uh, you wonder, you know, you hear about all the poverty and the people down there. Well, we, we picked up a real estate uh, catalog one time. And you know how they can survive on, on less money? Well, a house that, at that time, a house that up here would have gone for a quarter million, was about forty thousand down there. That's how they do it. Everything else is cheaper. Everybody thinks that just you know, if, if if wages go down, prices will continue to go up, and and they will in a short term in relative sense. But the the overall economy, if we were always lowering prices, um, eventually the price of everything would go down. The cost of everything would drop, and people would still live in a relatively prosperous way. It's got nothing to do with that per se. Um, interesting. he pointed out that it's management who crosses picket lines normally, because that's exactly what happened at Kellogg's, and yet CUPE president, or uh, rather, um, not Sid Ryan, but um, Jim Carrey was saying, uh, you know, that they're sending in strike and other people and, and scab labor, which wasn't even what was going on there. And... Um, What drives a strike settlement is the ability ability of employer to lock out an employee to strike. And they call that good faith, uh, is what Sid Ryan called it. Now, you know, bargaining in good faith means that if you cannot come to an agreement, you each go your own way. That's what the whole point of living in a free society is, is that people have a right to disagree. And when they disagree, they don't have to associate anymore. What a wonderful way to do it. But that's not the way unions think, and they talk about bargaining in good faith, as if uh, they're going to be there all the time. That no matter what bargain they try to make, they have the right to be there over anyone else who would be more than willing to bargain in good faith. And so, you know, I as a, I as a, an, as an employer, I'm not one, but if I were, I would have a right. Um, I should have a right to offer my conditions to someone else. That, that someone else has already rejected says I don't want to work for that. And and you know, people going on strike for things like uh, pay. It's absolutely an absurdity, too, because that totally distorts the whole workings of the marketplace. Now, what shall I say about a guy like Sid, you know, saying that allowing employers to choose their employees is Nazism? Well, <laughs> you know, you can take those things seriously and, um, you know, I think about what's happened to Sid in the last 10 years. This guy's now known as the Jew-hater of Canada. He, he was, this guy, he's been, out, he's been on the Michael Corrin show talking against the Jews. He's been saying the same thing. He sounds like a Nazi himself. And everybody's really being nice and easy on him, and his union has taken a stand against uh, Israel and all that stuff. So um, you always wonder, you know, uh, when I tell you that people, they're always, um, what what is that thing called? It's called... Um, Projection, projecting their own uh, their own misgivings and their own uh, motivations, let's say, onto other people, Um, and the fact again that fifty percent employees have a democratic to vote may be legal. It may be democratic in a in a given sense, uh, but certainly it's not really democratic. It's majority rule. Democracy, by the way, applies to not working within any particular group or organization. It's not democracy that's going on there. That's just voting. Democracy is an applicable term only to governments and their citizens and in, in the whole picture of getting election and the relationship of the state to its individuals. That's the only meaning doc- democracy can have. When you start talking about democracy in the home, democracy, uh, you know, I remember uh, Captain Kirk once said on his ship, he says, this isn't a democracy, <laughs> and he made it pretty clear it wasn't because it couldn't operate that way. Uh, committees just uh, just don't do it. So I think we're getting down to the bottom of the hour. Now we're going to take a quick break for uh, an ad and a little smile here. By the way, these uh, clips that you just heard and the last one you just heard from a movie called I'm All Right Jack, starring Peter Sellers. One of the funniest movies you'll ever see. Brilliantly written about the whole labor movement. It was written back in the 50s, I think. It's in black and white. Stars Peter Sellers. I think it's, 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 uh, it's just a brilliant piece. I, I can't believe how insightful this thing is it says more about the whole labor movement and of course it takes place in britain than uh than a million shows like this could otherwise do but we'll be back after this break
1: after due deliberation major hitchcock the works committee has had to call a stoppage in response to our members wishes oh really oh what precisely is the trouble the members feel that the agreement negotiated with respect to time and motion study is being contravened. Oh, that's impossible, you know me. I wouldn't do anything behind the backs of the unions. Then perhaps, Major Hitchcock, you can explain the presence of this new man. New man? But he hasn't started yet. Hasn't started yet. Then what's he doing on a f-f-f-f-forklift truck? Who? Windrush. Wind. That name rings a bell. Get his particulars. Get Let's be perfectly frank with each other, Major. This man is not a genuine worker. He's admitted as much. And in permitting him to drive one of them trucks, I would say the management is willfully jeopardizing the safety of its employees. What is more, Major, he does not hold a union card. Uh, here you are, Major.
0: Thank
1: you. But you're absolutely right. It's that damn labor exchange again. Henry, this man must be sacked immediately. Well, now do you see what we're up against? Nowadays, they send us anybody. Just anybody. I must say, I'm very really grateful to you Chats, for drawing this matter to my attention. I mean, after all, it is up to the unions to help us keep out the incompetence. Uh, if you do not mind, Major, we would all like to withdraw and consult. Oh, by all means, go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> Ah. My colleagues here have instructed me to put to you one question, Major. Certainly. Go ahead, my dear fellow. Is it or is it not your intention to sack this man? Sack him, of course. I'm obliged to point out, Major, that if you sack this man, the company is in breach of its agreement with the union. Surely he's not a union member. Correct, but that is merely technical. But didn't you say that he was incompetent and couldn't do his job properly? We do not and cannot accept the principle that incompetence justifies dismissal. That is victimization. That's right. Yeah. get yeah. here. Oh, well, we, we seem to have been across purposes. I was under the impression that it was you chaps who objected to this fellow. That was before we was in full possession of the facts. Well, in that case, everything's absolutely splendid and the fellow can stay on. Well, now, I think we can all congratulate ourselves on a most productive morning's work.
2: Uh, productive morning's work uh, with nothing done. That's uh, almost the way... Sounds like City Hall a bit, doesn't it? Welcome back, Bob Metz, on just right here on CHRW 94.9 FM, five one nine six six one thirty six hundred. the number to call if you want to join in on any conversations here. Now, I've mentioned these things before. Oh, by the way, a couple other things with, uh, with regard to what Sid Ryan was saying earlier. Um, or in that debate, I don't think he said this, but it ca- came up that... When unions negotiate contracts um, with a particular employer, that that contract eventually benefits other people and other businesses, and and et cetera. And I basically said, well, that also applies to um, non-union businesses. It's really another way of looking at the invisible hand, isn't it? People acting in their own self-interest end up doing good for society because in order to act in their own self-interest in a free market, when you're on a volunteer basis, and that's why volunteerism is so important, it has to be the prerequisite of anything. But when you're in a volunteer situation, what you make is what the people want. Otherwise, you wouldn't be making it. And the only things that are made under force or duress are things that people generally don't want and wouldn't buy as normal consumption. Some of those things are legitimate because governments need them, like bombs to protect the country and things like that, but those are legitimate government functions. When the government gets into business, into the issue of economics, into labor, that's where you've got some real problems, other than being, of course, the police of of legitimate contracts. That's what the government's legitimate jobs are. And, of course, all relationships should be consensual, and that's what the whole argument is about, too. Now, you keep hearing unions always arguing for political conditions and political um, solutions that are contrary to even their own interests. And it's because of, I guess, their hatred of capitalism and of corporations in general, too. And so you hear them talking about uh, getting rid of free trade and they want trade barriers and things like that, when really they should know a lot better. Why are they even talking like that? Um, one of the reasons that politicians and union leaders hate free trade is because free trade diminishes their power to interfere in the economy. Again, if you have freedom there and somebody wants to interfere with it, that's they have to have some kind of law or a gun to do it, which is basically the same thing. And remember that free trade, when we talk about it, means freedom from government with regard to a a citizen's decision regarding what he or she will buy and from where or from whom or how. Uh, The people being hurt by trade barriers are always the ones in the country that's that's imposing the trade barrier, which is ironic. Uh, Forcing people to buy only locally, for example, means that the people and companies are forced to buy from have some kind of rights that the rest of us don't have. And so talk about inequality and unfairness. Um, You know, Canadians weren't too concerned with the free trade way back when the dollar was setting new lows in relationship to the U.S. dollar, dropping to almost half. But all that meant was that Canadians were cheap labor relative to American labor. And that was a big issue. And then, of course, we have to be very cognizant constantly that labor is dependent entirely upon capital for its productive competitiveness. Um, without tools, machinery, technology, energy, and most importantly, money in the form of capital investment, every person's labor is a, is almost an equal value, which is pretty close to nil, <laughs> since a person alone, without any capital, would be hard pressed in nature uh, to provide even for himself and family, let alone for others. I, you know, I've said this before in many other contexts. Capitalism, or capital rather, is the key to all increases in the standard of living. And that's why the word capital is in the word capitalism. It's truly a capital system in every meaning of the word when you have um, capital coming into a country. And you always hear people in the unions talking against capital or wanting capital not to come from some normal source. Um, You know, the whole point of living in a free society is to have the right to accumulate what you earn, what you've created, whether it's your home, whether it's your office, your building, your whatever, without fear of having it confiscated, By governments which has been the history of most nations to date. You know, I I find it hard to believe my parents lived in Eastern Europe after the World War and my mom's still alive today and I just can't believe that she ever lived in a condition where the Russians came and the Americans came and the Nazis came and they all took away their homes. My my grandfather died in a in a Russian concentration camp. I never did meet him. Um, And it's hard to imagine in our lifetime Anything that horrible possibly happening, and I'll tell you, Germans were the same way. All of Europe was that way. They, were, they didn't. They couldn't see that coming. And remember, what was happening in Europe was the same thing. You had they, weren't, they were called a National Socialist Party. They were uh, labor unions and movements were huge in Germany. Germany was a social welfare state since Bismarck. The whole process was set into motion, and it just followed its natural course, as simple as dropping that ball. And so unless we are aware of these forces and where they, where they come from. And unfortunately, unions are right in the center of the, of the mentality that drives these horrible things because they just can't get it around their head that everything should be voluntary. And if you want to hear that expressed in spades, we'll take a break now. Or not a break, we'll go to this next clip. And this is, uh, when did this occur? This was in 2001, just two years after the last one you heard. But this is more local, and it took place on Rogers Cable, I think I had to. Be, I think it was in Woodstock at the time, and um, it was myself. Jim Chapman was actually hosting the show then, and I was invited in with Gil Warren. We had been frequent guests on Jim's show when he was doing it over at BK way back when, and uh, Gil Warren, of course, saw London District Labour Council, etc. But um, boy, this is one of the most frustrating conversations I must have ever had in my life. But I thought I'd share it with you for the next nine minutes or so, and we'll be back right after that.
0: I want to start with you, Bob, and ask you what you see as the future for organized labor in, in, in this country. What's the, what purpose do you see it serving in the next 5, 10, 15 years?
2: Well, uh, it's curious you're saying just organized labor, because when I think of labor, I think of the average working guy who's not part of a, an organized union group. But what unions have traditionally done is monopolize their labor, and that has been their primary function in the marketplace. And you say they're under attack from external forces now. Well, it's basically the marketplace and competing labor that is making it difficult for organized labor to maintain its high wages since, you know, you've heard that, that expression, um, pricing themselves out of the marketplace because of the fact of uh, having that protected marketplace in the sense of where a union can prevent other people from taking a person's job if they're on strike, which is really what they're striking against, particularly when they want higher wages, they're striking against the guy that's willing to work for a little bit less. Gil,
0: is that what's happened?
2: Is it, is it, is it about
0: no. protective work, work area work
2: no,
3: I think that you have to see that the labor movement is a movement. It goes up and down. You can look back in labor history for 200 years and see periods where it's very active and then periods where it becomes less active. And I think that uh, we are now actually headed into a phase where labor is becoming more active. In fact, the labor participation rate, the union rate in the United States is increasing. And our numbers are not decreasing. L- the labor movement in Canada sort of leveled off in terms of numbers. What, about 30% now? Yes, right. And whereas in the States, it dropped down to like 8 or 10%. Mm-hmm. So, so there were different political dynamics going on in the States and Canada, but both labor movements are now growing. And so I feel that uh, that part of it is that, that the labor movement's coming back. The other part of it is that uh, we've had right-wing governments in power now for 20 years pushing monetarist ideas, and part of, part of that is... The policy of high interest rates and and making sure that uh, the economy is not going at full blast, which means a labor pool, which means competition amongst workers, in terms of finding work. And so, labor is always stronger when there's a strong labor market and when there's a prosperous economy. So, if we had had high, lower interest rates over the last 20 years, there would have been more employment. And so, you're
0: saying that these governments have been pulled, holding the economy back? Yes, yes. With with high interest rates.
2: Well, and he's also saying that the right wing supports that. I don't know who he's including in that, but I'm not in that group there. But, you know, Gil, you talk about the the labor movement moving up and down, but you have to admit it's a political movement. It's not really a movement in the marketplace. It's more of a political movement, and 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 it's aided and abetted by the political process. If you didn't have the legal right that is given to a union by law to to withhold your labor from an employer who therefore cannot go out somewhere else and hire another employer, unions would have no power. All can, of but, their but power comes from their medical force. He can go
0: somewhere else. He can take his plant somewhere else. Why aren't they doing that? If that's the problem, why aren't we seeing more Canadian
2: plants leave? Uh, because Canadian plants are still productive. I'm just saying it's not the union that's making them so. It's the investment of capital that's making that. That's why we live in a capitalist society. It's capital that makes a, a, a person and labor productive so that he can be afforded the
3: wage that he gets. There are a lot of other reasons why factories are here in Canada. I think we have to look at the big picture, and we have to look at the fact that that uh, working people need to be able to to have a decent standard of living. And, so I, and, 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 th- and th- it's declined. It's declined in the last ten Here years. Here you are advocating
2: bigger government, more government spending, and you're really reluctant to say anything about lower taxes. And yet you purport to support working people. I don't understand it, Gil. It's a it's a completely opposite agenda Cause, you cause have. I for argue people. for fair
3: taxes. So so I argue for. Uh, a tax system that that is more progressive than regressive, one that that taxes the wealthier more, and and taxes the average working person less. But
2: everyone. Why? Still Why would you want that? Why doesn't everyone just pay a flat rate, and then the people who make a hundred thousand, say for example, pay ten thousand in taxes, and the guy who pays ten thousand only pays one thousand. The
3: guy, the guy, the guy who makes a hundred thousand dollars income, or a million dollars, is the one I'm more focused on has has been able to benefit from our society and take more out, and so he has an obligation to put more back in again. Well, is but it I think true
2: that society has benefited from him because he earned his money voluntarily, we bought his product, and that's why he became rich, because he benefited us. So what you're saying is, for doing something good for us, we should punish you and and fine you
3: for, for doing now, good. I think it's a matter of emphasis and values, and what, what I argue is... And I'm not arguing for great state enterprises doing things. In fact, I'm arguing for community economic development, and I'm arguing for worker co-ops and uh, housing co-ops. And Why don't the workers do that now? Because it's very difficult to get the capital to get started, oh. and it's very difficult to so get... So, in the minute
2: you get the capital, you're not a worker in his definition no, anymore. You, you become no, a, no, an ultra-capitalist no, it's and you're evil. No,
3: there's a difference between <laughs> collective capital and individual capital. So you like
2: corporations and as opposed
3: to an individual owner, then? What i like is to, is to see community economic development. I think that's a whole different... Well, that's corporate. T- no, it's not. No, community economic development is, is getting the community to, to be involved in, in economic development. But
0: well, well, Bob, what's wrong, with, what's wrong with trying to mobilize communities to help themselves? What's wrong with
2: that? Nothing at all, but I know that when Gill uses the word community, he really means government. He means sticking his hand no, in your pocket. No, no I don't. Mind. Well, I then, don't. then I don't have any objection to it. So why are you using the word community, and why do you have objections to rich people? They're part of the community. Um, the capitalist is part of the community. The corporation is part of Often the community, but you want to always cut them out of the community. Often
3: they're not part of the community. They're 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 foreigners from some other country who brought in their capital. What I'm arguing is for local people. Well, what does that mean? That's great. Yeah. That's no, great. But there's it? this myth out there that the left is 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 big and and it's for a big state and it's for for big government. But the, the left today is different than what it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago. How so what's the chief difference? Well, one of the problems was that there were many people on the left who just focused on uh, taxes and getting the money and then spending money on health or education, schools, hospitals. And, and what's happened now is many, in, and, and they didn't pay attention to economics or business or, com- or, or the community or co-ops. Many people now are focusing on how can a community keep the money in that community and how can we have... Reinvestment that stays in the community. How can we do it collectively instead of individually? How do you do
0: that if you're going to take the money away well, from people? Why rich would you want to? is, is a big question. I'm still, I'm still. Stuck it's not just
3: taking it from the rich. It's about the community developing its own wealth. So having things like credit unions, like we have a, in London we have a credit union that has like like about 700 million dollars in assets. It's a very large credit we union. Wealth and that comes is from production. That's, that's yes, it does. That's it's all
2: that, that all. It's all that matters. No, but well does. Production is what matters, and what you need to do is it's eliminate barriers to production. Get rid of regulations that make no, it hard for an investor no. to get his money to where he wants to produce something.
0: Why do you disagree? Why, why, why would why do we want barriers? Because in the he way wants political power. People investing in, in exactly what you're talking about it it's doesn't not, make it's, our communities better. It's not. It, it's not a If you need money for this community development, and, a, and an investor mm-hmm. comes along and says, "I've got some money for you," Where's the problem there?
3: Well, uh, he's going to want a high rate of return. You know, well, he's going to want a rate of return. No, but one of the principles of community economic development is maybe instead of taking a fifteen or twenty percent return, you take five percent or or you take two percent. Like pe- the, it's local community investors. So you
2: ex- you think that somebody's going to invest their money over here where you're offering two percent when Jim over here is offering ten percent? So I've got yes, this money. I'm going to give it useful. to you. Well, it's going to be socially useful giving it to Jim at ten percent too. But Probably more so because no. the difference, the 8%, tells me how much more socially useful it actually is. It no, actually no, that's can be measured. Ar- arbitrary. Why? That is, that's That's the only non-arbitrary arbitrary thing anything. in the whole equation. Everything you've I've
3: been involved in community economic development and worker co-ops and setting up worker co-ops. And there are people who are willing to take less of a, less of a profit in, in return to help, to help the but community. But isn't that great? It is. That's great. Yeah, that's so cool. why
0: don't you keep doing
3: that? Well, we, we are. Are you running out of people? We are, but we need assistance from the government in terms of access to capital. So to, the, to access Back to the community the being
2: government. No, that's not. No, it's saying that you just there's, said we need, need a assistance a from the government, and then you'd say in the next sentence, no, you're not asking for. We're assistance asking from for government. We
3: we ask for assistance in terms of access to pools of capital. But if
0: this is such a good idea,
3: this is such a good idea. done around
0: the world. been done a lot in Europe, in Italy, France. Do that. I'm the guy trying to learn. I'm trying to learn from both you guys. Here's what I want to know, though. Yeah. If this is such a good yeah, idea, why are you running out of people to do it? Why do you have to go to the government? If it's good idea for the community. Because exactly.
3: most people don't have a lot of extra cash floating around to, to invest, right? I mean, that's one of the problems. For the average working person, he's having a difficult time paying the mortgage and paying the car payments, right? I mean, But all investment
2: cash is extra cash. That's why it's called capital. Capital is cash over and above one's necessity. Mm-hmm. So that when you're looking for capital, you have no choice but to go to people who have capital, and those are people who are richer than most of us. But that's part, see, there's the problem. That's part of the
3: problem with the system, is that, that ordinary people need to be able to access capital, and government can assist in that way.
2: Wow. <laughs> Do you really want a guy like that running your union or running your business? Holy cow. Talk about protesting reality and and just the process is necessary. Whenever there is a solution there for the supposed problem that Gill is identifying, he rejects it. Doesn't want capital from a foreigner, doesn't want capital from this person, doesn't want ca- it's got to be a community. Can't be a corporation. Oh my goodness. You know no matter there's no such thing as community activity in the sense that Gil is trying to say if, if you've ever worked in a committee or anything, any group activity it always ends up that one, two or three people run the whole show it's the only way it ever works and of course Gil's hoping that he can kind of position himself into the front position uh, if there's no structure there, he doesn't want to see any structure and the constant denial that he's relying on government for everything he wants to do he says it we need government this you can tell him in the next sentence you just use the word government and he denies it in the next sentence you hear it there I've, I've dealt with that with that guy for years and years and it's interesting that you know you're talking about f- even flat taxes which I don't necessarily support but at least the, if you're having income tax it should be flat and um... but you know he's, he's opposed to that too because of course he wants to see a progressive tax rate and um, his interest is not the guy with 100,000 his interest is the guy with the million so he's always this this constant envy and 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 greed for the other guy's money and and and, and a complete denial of the fact that if you want capital you've got to deal with rich people you're not, you're not going to get capital out of poor people come on um, it's just amazing just amazing how bad it can get but of course missing in the entire discussion of everything um, with unions or the whole subjects of, you know, there's another form of, of capital and it's called savings. People put money in their bank accounts and they leave their money in the bank accounts and the banks do all the investing and, and stuff like that. But the most obvious fact is if you want jobs, if it's the relationship you're after and uh, what you need is a thing called employers. Never hear, never hear them talking about the employer except as an enemy. The enemy is the employer, and yet that is the very person that they depend upon for what they call their jobs, because it's a relationship. It depends upon another person. And yet the the union agenda simply takes employers for granted. It takes the customers for granted. It takes all the processes in the marketplace for granted, as if you can somehow magically interfere with this process and still expect it to work. Uh, we can, you know, we can kill the capitalists, get rid of them, get rid of all these people. We'll still have capital somehow. I don't know where he thinks the wealth is created. It's, there's a complete disconnect. I remember once having a discussion with Gill, talking about how he saw all labor relations as a completely adversarial thing. And I'm thinking, my goodness, if you were my employee, I wouldn't want you working for me. If I if I hire you, you're going to be my enemy. I'm going to pay you to be my enemy when all I want to do is make cereal or create, create a widget or something? Why? What's your problem? And I, I, honestly, folks, I think people in this whole movement have some problems of carrying around with them. Um, you can't hate capitalism as Gil Warren does and keep begging for capital. Uh, it's just as hypocritical as you can possibly get, which is why, of course, Atlas uh, Shrugged is, again, being big on the, uh, on the book sales and why Atlas continues to shrug. Um, you know, the process has been described as business withholding its, uh, its support from the, from the economy, so to speak, which is not so much a conscious decision as it is a, 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 an end of a process, more than a conscious decision to strike, uh, which is what the book was about. And it's interesting to, say what I, to see what Ayn Rand actually has said on the, on the whole union issue. She wrote many years ago that the, you know, the, and this would be back in the 60s and 70s, that the artificially high wages forced on an economy by compulsory unionism imposes economic hardships on other groups, particularly non-union workers, and on unskilled labor, which was being squeezed gradually out of the market. By the way, interesting point, too, is you notice uh, Gill and, and the rest are talking back in, at their period where union people were being paid 8 bucks an hour. Uh, and now we have a minimum wage that's about $10 an hour. So all those people, if they had been in that bracket, they're all on the unemployment list today. And, then, and the liberals knew they were going to put them on the unemployment list. When they brought that uh, increase in, they said so. And yet we all just went along with it. And then, okay, unemployment, we got it. We wanted it. Um, and, she, of course, she says the widespread unemployment is a result of organized labor's privileges and of allied measures such as minimum wage laws. For years, the union supported these measures in sundry welfare legislation, apparently in the belief that the costs would be paid by taxes imposed on the rich. The growth of inflation has shown that the major victim of government spending and of taxation is the middle class. Organized labor is part of the middle class, and the actual value of labor's forced social gains is now being wiped out. Boy, <laughs> could that have been written today. And you might think that Ayn Rand had nothing good to say about uh, unions at all but she did actually she said in the time past you know organized labor was more, much more sensitive to the danger of uh, government power and much more aware of ideological issues and she 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 said that you know way back when Uh, Labor fought conscription in World War II, the issue of US contributions to the Soviet-dominated international labor organization, believe it or not. They fought President Kennedy's attempt to impose guidelines in the steel crisis. And she said, yeah, they fought for their own rights, but when you're fighting for your own rights, uh, whoever defends his own rights, of course, defends the rights of all. And then she says, but of course, what happened, Labor started pursuing a contradictory policy, and in many issues, most notably, its support of welfare state legislation. Labor has violated the rights of others and fertilized the growth of the government's power. And today, labor is in line to become the next major victim of advancing statism. And she reminds us it was business, not labor, that initiated the policy of government intervention in the economy as long ago as the 19th century. And business was the first victim. Labor adopted the same policy and will meet the same fate. He who lives by a legalized sword will perish by a legalized sword. Concludes Ayn Rand and conclude I on today's show as we leave you again for another week. Hope you join us. Join us again next week as we take our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, do right, stay right, and think right. And be right back here a week from today. See you then. Take care.
3: the
0: US, they got, you know, Ronald Reagan is a saint. A saint in the United States. I live there. I occasionally drive on the Ronald Reagan Freeway, where I live. Because they got this legacy project, Ronald Reagan Legacy Project. Their goal is to name something after Ronald Reagan in all 50 states. We don't really have a Brian Mulroney, like, well, we have 50 names for (laughs) him.